home, they say, is where the heart is. But is it also the place where warriors are forged? Join us to hear one man's quest to resurrect brutal techniques and harsh conditions of a bygone era. To train a new breed of fighters, all in the relative tranquility of the suburbs of Anytown, USA. In this episode, you will see what makes Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu one of the most effective and deadliest martial arts out there. Find out how myths and legends are born. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri, and with me is Shihan Russell St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How you doing, Shihan? I'm doing great. So what are we going to chat about today? So I thought it'd be great if we talked about the old Hambu Dojo. Ah, yes. That was quite a place. We did a lot of very hard training there over the years. I heard quite a bit of stories and info from a lot of people who came before me, a lot of the black belts and some of the senior members of the dojo, and it seems to hold a, a nostalgic place in everybody's heart. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't get a chance to start my training there, although I did get the opportunity before you closed it to at least experience, a, it might have been at least a couple of classes. I've been there a number of times. Exactly. It was quite a special place, something that I had always dreamed of doing. You know, even though I had commercial dojo space before, I really wanted to do something that was small and private and had the old traditional feel so that people could get that experience. Oh, I didn't realize that you had uh, commercial spaces before. So that was one oh, my, yeah. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Like, what does Hambu mean? Sure. Hambu just means headquarters. Um, like we were talking about uh, in an earlier podcast, you know, using the term sensei, how that is just a term in Japanese to mean teacher, and it could be any teacher. Hambu just means a headquarters, so a headquarters of an organization, specifically in the martial arts. It refers to the main dojo of a system, typically where you know the founder or the headmaster of that system is teaching. It's also an administrative sort of headquarters, right? It's where all the behind-the-scenes stuff takes place. Um, it, so it doesn't specifically have to be the dojo space itself where the mats are. It could even be a larger building if you think of the Kodokan or the Aikikai in, in Japan. I mean, those are multi-story buildings that have several dojos within them, but they're the home of that martial art. And you mentioned the dojos could be located in Japan or in other places. Is there a typical place where a hanbu could be located or could be anywhere? Sure. So Right after clans in Japan started dissolving and they were practicing in one specific place to preserve those martial arts, typically that place, whatever that was, was considered to be the Hanbu. It's where the main clan leader or the main instructor of that martial art would teach that martial art. And then, you know, as we moved into the 20th century and some of the bigger martial arts like, you know, Shotokan Karate or Aikido or Judo, some of the other, you know, larger martial arts spread throughout Japan and then throughout Europe, etc. There needed to be that one central place that was the place of authority for exactly what was in the system. You know, they were the the authority that kind of gave the certifications to all the instructors. In their language, they were saying, hey, this is the headquarters. Early on, it was probably out in the countryside at 
at that instructor's house, uh, maybe even attached directly to his house, which is uh, what some of the old styles still have today, or it could have been on some ancient property that's belonged to the clan forever, or as they grew, now they're in the big cities, right? There are Hambus in, in Tokyo and Osaka and, and other big cities in Japan. And then there are now some Hambus outside of Japan for uh, systems that have been passed on to a non-Japanese person or that Japanese person has moved out of Japan. So now there's Hambus in various parts of the world. Right. I recall when I was doing Shotokan Karate, uh, JKA style, the Hambu is located in Tokyo. So we got whenever we got the certification or passed a test or something, it would come straight from there. Right. It gave it an air of legitimacy, I guess. Oh, it's an old Japanese art, and it and the headquarters of Tokyo feels real to me. Well, of course, it feels real to us because we're not in Japan, right? We're outside, so it sort of lends that connection back to the you know to the home country and to the legitimacy but you know seeing it from a japanese person's standpoint they may be practicing at some dojo in you know the countryside right they've been with that instructor their whole life and he's a main instructor and he's got 30 black belts and you know it's a multi-generational thing but the headquarters is often some city somewhere and that person would recognize that there's a headquarters somewhere and there's an administrative head or whatever. But certainly he would have his dedication and, and uh, his loyalty to, you know, his instructor at the dojo, you know, in his in his town. So it's a little bit of a different feeling when you're in Japan than, than when you're outside of Japan. And also it's a manifestation of what it was happening during the early, early 20th century. I mean, before that, I'm not even entirely sure somebody would have used the term hambu um, or not. There certainly would have been some some building, some place where you would have gone to practice the unarmed form of combat that would have tatami mats and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, there were other places, right, if you were doing other jutsus like your uh, bow and arrow or your spear or your sword or whatever, you you may or may not even be inside of a building. So that whole concept of a, of a hambu didn't really exist until these martial arts started spreading throughout the rest of the world. Well, back to old Hambu. Keep referring to it as the old Hambu. Where would you consider the Hambu to be located now? I guess in the real translation of the word, um, one of them really doesn't exist right now. When I had a specific you know, building that I was operating from and I was managing the entire Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu system, I guess that would be considered the hambu but being that that those two things are not really attached uh, right now i would say that one doesn't exist it it may again at some point in the future if we assign another headmaster at some point and that person has a formal dojo with you know a location and students there it may exist again you know the one that existed before was specifically a dojo that was built in the traditional tea house style you know on my property in connecticut and it started with a very small group of people that over time, uh, most of them became you know, the people who are the key instructors and the black belts. Most of the black belts that are out there today trained at that dojo. And, and we tried to operate it in a way that was very traditional as if you had belonged to an old clan and had to really feel what that level of training was like. That's sort of where you know the stories and the traditions came from is, is from that atmosphere that we made at that at that dojo. And if you don't mind, maybe I can give you my first impressions of... Sure, I'd love to hear it. Right, because I, I feel like I'm in a unique perspective where I came in when you were transitioning from that uh, traditional Hanbu dojo in the back of your house to the storefront in, in East Hartford. And I started at the storefront when you first started it, uh, had a chance to go back and look at it. And I had a perspective of having done 
done it in the new place. So that's the only, to me, that was the humble in my mind, of course. Sure. You know, sure. but but actually seeing it and, and experiencing after hearing some of the stories. So let me give you those first impressions. Yeah, well, I'd love number, to hear them. Number one, it was it was at your house. So first I had to, you know, navigate and find your house. Okay, get onto the driveway. I got out and then I, I look around I'm like, okay, a nice house. So I got a pool in the backyard. All right. And, and then <laughs> I see this shed where the woods are, typically where most people in that neighborhood or locality would store their riding mower or lawn equipment or something. Instead, <laughs> it lo- it was a shed and it didn't look like, quite like a, a typical shed. I'd have to say it looked, it had a slight kind of Japanese feel to it. More sure. I mean, it Asian. wasn't quite as small as the shed, right? It was, it was really one of the biggest ones that you could have uh, available that wasn't a barn, right? It was about 400 square feet. It had windows, it had doors, you know, so it wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a small little shed. But we did do a little bit to it. Like, um, you know, we added a, a porch and an overhang and, you know, we had sort of that air of a Japanese tea house uh, without it really sticking out too much in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I want to mention that it wasn't as small as as you'd expect a, a typical shed to be. So yeah, it was pretty authentic looking from that perspective. Entering it I felt like it was stepping into you know a different place in time. I mean, inside it was, if you're talking about keeping a little low-key outside uh, exterior-wise, uh, but still having that feel, inside it was a completely different story. Can you tell our audience about how it was decorated and how it was set up inside? Sure. Um, we had, you know, traditional tatami uh, mats that, um, you know, they're, they're sort of that, I guess, light green, gray color. We had uh, the way that the wood was done in the in the room itself, you know, it came up to about waist height was was, uh, you know, panel wood, you know, real wood planks. And then above that, it was white. There was exposed beams in the place. At the front, there was a traditional uh, Japanese Shinto kamiza, you know, that had um, all the elements of a, of a traditional kamiza. There were also pictures from all throughout history um, of the dojo at various places on shelves. Uh, there were practice guns and knives and hambos laying around. Uh, there were curriculum charts on the walls. So yeah, it was a it was definitely had its own uh, atmosphere. And you know, of course, nobody ever walks in when the place is empty on their first day, right? They're walking in there with uh, students who are already you know, ready to go. And, and, you know, you kind of walk in and you're like, holy cow, what's going on here? At least that's what I've heard from people. How did, how did you feel? Even though I had been doing Kobukai for a couple of months, might've been at least maybe, I think the first time I stepped into it was at least a few months. And, and still I felt like I was stepping into something different. And every time you you go walk into a different dojo or a different style or something, you're always asking yourself, uh, am I doing something to to upset somebody or is it, am I not following the tradition right? Am I supposed to step here or not step here or bow? Or you know, it, it still felt like that to me. But you know, I, everybody else, the students that were there. You guys were just did their thing and 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 felt completely at ease. And then there was also a, a kind of a different air of I, don't, I can't really put my finger on it, but it just felt a little bit. I, mean, I can't think of the word to to describe. I it. would say maybe Spartan. It's, you know, <laughs> as you as you uh, you know when you come into the dojo, and let's just talk about the East Hartford one. But I mean, we had other other dojos and commercial spaces over the years. You know, you come in and you see what you would expect to see. You know, as an American, right? There is. 
sure, certainly it's a dojo and there's mats and, you know, things that are related to martial arts, but it, it also has the feeling of a fitness facility, right? You come in and there's a, you know, there's a, a little pro shop where there's geese hanging and, you know, there's t-shirts that you can get. There's a front desk where you sign in and, you know, you can pay and ask questions and, um, you know, there's a formal place to put your shoes. There's changing rooms and bathrooms and there's seating for guests. And, you know, it's, it's what you expect, right? It's what we've kind of grown up with since the sixties or seventies as what a dojo in America looks like. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, when you, when you have a large, you know, commercial space, that's, that's how that goes. Cause it's what your customers expect. And, and I would say that the Hambu was pretty much exactly opposite of that. So there's no heat, no air conditioning, no place to put your shoes. You just left them outside, no bathrooms, no changing rooms, no place to seat sit, you know, no, no, uh, pro shop. I mean, it was just a place where you were going to come in and you were going to get some serious, you know, martial art training. Uh, you were going to sweat or you were going to freeze and it was just going to be really tough. Uh, and so I, I can totally see that, you know, mentally that says something different to you when you walk into a space like that. Was that actually part of the training? You said you kind of wanted to do something like this for a while. Is that, was that intentional? It was. It was absolutely intentional. Um, I had researched quite a bit about how some of the earliest dojos formed and where people were were doing them and, you know, how some of them were actually uh, in parts of their house or attached to their house or buildings on their property and and what that atmosphere was like. I I read a lot about um, some of the early dojos that were actually in our systems, like uh, like the Kodenkan in Hawaii. you know, like some of the dojos, like the Market Street Dojo that Duke Moore taught at in San Francisco, and really what were the elements of that 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 really were that old school feel. I researched a lot about what they actually looked like inside uh, and out, and, you know, did my best to recreate that. You know, not that it changes the curriculum or anything like that, but it certainly attracts a certain group of people and would turn other people away, right? Would it turn other people off? So it did exactly that. I think if you came in there, you either thought, this is crazy. I I probably should not be here. Or you were like, wow, this is really intriguing. I got to find out what this is all about. Yeah. And that's the, that's the impression I get from the, the, the students that had trained there with you. It almost feels like when they're talking about their experiences, it almost can liken that to, um, uh, war stories or, or for people that have been in the military and had some shared experiences that were have been really challenging and, and trying at times and kind of reminiscing about it in, in that regard. Sure. Uh, and, and again, that was all part of exactly what we were doing there. I mean, if you can imagine, let's just pick a you know a winter day, you know, you drive up the driveway, you've got to cross the lawn, which, you know, maybe or maybe not, I had shoveled a path to the door. And, you know, we have a little kerosene heater in there that, you know, within about a foot of it, it's pretty warm and the rest of the place is freezing cold. You you got bare feet and, you know, now you have to start warming up. You know, maybe we open the door and go running through the snow a little bit. Not that that has anything to do with making, you know, you a better martial artist, but it certainly toughens you up mentally. And then to, you know, work out for an hour and a half at a very, very high level, just sweating your brains out and opening the door at the end and having like cold air rush in and turn the whole room into into fog essentially that type of shared experience of of difficulty you know like the military but and and other difficult things definitely brings people together um you know for those who hack it no matter how much it hurts or, or how much anybody complains but they just stay no matter what they definitely have a camaraderie that that develops 
And then as time goes on and you move to a different type of environment, it kind of puts you in a specific place, right? When, you know, somebody in a more commercial dojo, in the East Hartford dojo, you know, complains that it's hot or that it's cold or <laughs> that it's tough or any of those type of things, the people who went through that experience in the Hambo Dojo, you know, kind of laugh like, yeah, you have no idea what hot, cold, hard, you know, any of those things are. So it definitely um, it definitely sets up a certain attitude. Yeah, we learned very quickly never to complain about any physical or creature comforts. <laughs> Actually, I was I was reading a, a book a little while ago and I was talking about how the Gracies had come to America in California specifically, and they started with um, a place in their garage as well. So talk a little bit about those kind of comparisons. For example, like you said before, when we walk into a, a, a dojo, it, you know, what kind of people do end up staying for something like that? You know, and, and was that what you were really after to weed out the folks that, you know, want something easy, you know, used to their, you know, one hour a, a week or something, exercise classes, you know, in full air conditioning and comfort. Yeah, that's exactly what we were trying to do. I think you have choices, right? So, uh, well, I mean, we can even talk about, uh, you know, the Gracies or, or any of that. I mean, there's been many martial arts that have started in, you know, a garage or, or something to that effect. And I think, People are used to seeing um, what the traditional American, you know, or European type dojo looks like, and then they see something different, and they're either turned off by it, like you know, this is some fly by night. I have no idea what this guy is doing in his garage, or they wonder themselves to themselves, "Geez, I'm I'm looking at what they're doing, and it's really really good. Why are they doing it in a garage, right? Why are they, or why are they doing it in?" The shed. I mean, why doesn't this guy have some big business? You know, there's got to be some reason behind that. You know, is he trying to stay away from that type of environment? Is he is he trying to make other kinds of choices? You know, instead of having to make choices to pay the bills, is he just trying to pick the right people that he wants to train with? And and I think people that start to ask those questions are the ones that end up, you know, going. They become intrigued with the fact that it's it's being done in its purest sense it's not being done for a business and there's nothing wrong with that like i said i've had i've had several you know commercial versions of the dojo that's that's really not the point the point is was for a period of time to create that atmosphere where it was purely the essence of the art without worrying about all the other extraneous things you just came to a single place, you trained as hard as you could, and you left, and there were no creature comforts. So um, I, I think that's why some of those those arts form in these, you know, strange places that you wouldn't normally think of a martial art being practiced, and, and it attracts a certain type of people. And inevitably, those first, you know, those first people that come and stay end up being some of the best instructors in that system. And can you uh, talk a little bit about why those type of people would be better, I guess, than somebody who may be growing up, so to speak, in a in a more commercialized setting? Yeah, and I wouldn't say um, you know better maybe is the right word. It's not it's not that their technique or anything like that is better. I think a couple of things happen. Number one, they come in and they get they get a lot of private time with the main instructor, right? Because those classes are usually really small. You know, it's not like you're in a place that's got 50 or 100 students. It, it's 10 or eight. And so they're getting very, very individualized attention, and that instructor is paying attention to every little nuance of where they put a foot or a hand or, or whatever. And also, typically, they're training at the pace of the instructor. They're not, the instructor isn't worried about 30 or 40 people in a room and who's doing what at what level and all the different things you have to worry about when you have a larger place. Right? The instructor comes in, he wants to train at a certain pace 
doing certain things on a specific night and you're just there to do whatever he feels like doing. And so you really kind of pick up the essence of what that instructor is is like and how they teach and how they think and how they feel and philosophies and all those things because it's such a small, close-knit group. Out of those people in the early Hambu Dojo, some percentage of them probably will become instructors and they will have that feeling to bring along with them and to help them teach like the next generation. Uh, it's, it's, it's a certain mental and physical toughness. It's a certain philosophy. And it's that ability to be that close to the primary instructor for a long time and, and really get the essence of what they're trying to teach. You know what that reminds me of? It harkens back to um, idealistic notions of martial arts as it you know, might or might not have been throughout the uh, centuries that it's being passed down from father to son, so to speak, or having disciples come in and live with a, with a master for a number of years to really be, to embody the essence of what being taught. Yeah, I think there is, um, there's some mythology around that. Uh, a little bit, and that happens over the generations. It's it's kind of inevitable. I um, mean, there's no question about it that you know the story as it happens has you know a certain feel and and a certain set of facts, and then over time it can become exaggerated or stretched or uh, you know embellished, uh, and then you know you put a couple of centuries on top of that, and and it can be a pretty wild story. But there's always a core truth to those stories, and it, it usually has to do with just the pure physical and mental difficulty of how training was in a in a place like that. The place may or may not look Japanese style, like Sushiro Okazaki, who taught Danzanru. He had a dojo called the Kodenkan, but it was really a, a lanai, uh, like a giant porch off of the back of his house that he had mats in. And, you know, it, it was very, you know, it was decorated Japanese because he was Japanese. But, you know, again, that's it, it wasn't some mountaintop retreat, you know, where you had to walk up stone steps and, you know, fight your way to the to the door or anything like that. I mean, a lot of that's mythology. But again, it does have a lot to do with the mental mental and physical toughness uh, and the, the level of training and the closeness to the instructor. So in that, there may be a little bit of of what those old stories are talking about when they, you know, talk about those you know, mythological teachers in the past. It's it's probably that's the essence of the story. Yeah, I feel really truly fortunate to even experience a, a small part of that in, in my lifetime. I watch a lot of martial arts movies and and fantasize about the mythology of it. The fact that you actually tr- succeeded in implementing that in today, modern day today, it's almost uh, unfathomable, unbelievable. It takes a little bit of thinking and planning. I mean, I think sometimes from the student standpoint, it just seems very natural that, you know, wow, all this stuff just occurred. It was, you know, it was amazing. But there was, there was a lot of thought that went into it on my part. You know, just as a couple of examples, and, and these this is the type of stuff, too, that you hear in these old stories about the crazy sensei or, you know, the, that kind of stuff. I think they're, they think of ways to stretch their students beyond their comfort level. And that can be construed as, you know, being crazy, but it's very, very, very well planned. And so here's a couple of examples, some stuff that I used to do uh, that, you know, was seen as crazy or torturous or, you know, now it's memorable or mythical or whatever, but it was, it was extremely well planned in order to make people have to act and think in certain ways to push them beyond their level of of comfort and to also send 
a specific message about what the atmosphere was supposed to be like, right? It set up the expectation of the atmosphere. So one good example was, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I had a, a pool at my house, I had an in-ground pool, and we used to do um, the pool class, right, during during the summer. We'd have a couple of days where it was just unbearably hot, you know. It's probably 95 outside, which meant it was like 130 in the dojo. And even though we did do one of those classes where we closed the doors and the window and made everybody do, you know, yoga for about a half an hour and then still do jujitsu and until they had to soak themselves with a hose because they were dying, which is a little crazy, but that's okay. Um, on some of those other days, we would just, you know, say, hey, we're going to go train in the pool. And of course, the students were like, yes, that sounds fantastic. It's really hot. I can't wait to get in the pool. And then, of course, we'd go through like a 40 minute Navy SEAL type class where, you know, people are doing push ups and flutter kicks while being sprayed by a hose and, you know, have to jump in and out of the deep end 50 times and, go underwater as a group and hold your breath. And the first one that came up had to get out and do 30 pushups and jump back in. So, you know, it just, it was a crazy, crazy exercise session. And then we'd go into the shallow end and we'd actually, you know, do randori. We'd fight against each other in a, in an environment that was completely different than the dojo, right? You're up to your waist in water. You know, there's different, different physics involved. Um, there's the whole concept of, you know, I, I can't, pull guard because then I'm underwater. So I'm drowning. <laughs> and, and also, you know, if you guillotine somebody, you don't just have to choke them out. I mean, you can just hold their head underwater and then, you know, the panic sets in. And so it was a whole mental game of just taking your art and putting it in a completely different environment and saying, so how are you going to deal? You know, how are you going to deal with it? Another classic example is, you know, one time I came out to the dojo and, and, uh, you know, we had already had some black belts at that point. So, I, I told one of the black belts, listen, you know, my back is kind of hurting today. Can you take the group out for a run? You know, we had a usual run route. It was maybe two miles. So they took him out for a run. And, you know, as you finish out your two miles and you're coming back towards the house, you know, you're, you're getting a little relief in your head. You're like, yeah, finally I can make it. And by the time they got back, I was standing at the end of the driveway waiting for them. And I was like, okay, now we're going to go on a real run. And I took him out for another two miles, you know, up these insane hills that, you know, they could barely do because they just ran two miles. And it was all about the mentally coming back and being ready for relief and then suddenly having a brand new challenge that you had to deal with because that's what happens in real life. So, you know, I want them to be prepared for the unexpected and being able to mentally change on the dime and be able to react to that and suck it up and, and, and do it and make it happen. You know, there were things like we did all the time like that. Uh, we went on a run once and somebody got turned around and got lost and I knew the neighborhoods the guy wasn't going to end up in someplace bad, but, you know, he was going to have to make it back on his own. Um, he's going to have to figure it out. He fell behind, he got lost and, and he had to figure out his way back. And it was literally the first run he ever went on with us. So he didn't know the neighborhoods. He had to find his way back. And, and that again was important. It was important in two ways. Number one, he had to prove to himself that he could take care of himself. And then number two, it sent a message to the rest of the people, you know, in the dojo, number one, keep up on the run. And number two, nobody gets a break here, right? It doesn't matter if it's day one or, you know, you've been here for two years. You know, you have to be able to take care of yourself. I'm not going to be standing next to you when you get into a real fight. You have to take care of yourself. 
So just things like that, which may seem a little nutty, are actually very, very well planned out so that uh, people learn in a certain way. And you can't always pull those things off in a larger commercial dojo, right? There's just there's too many people involved and, you know, there's expectations of, of the students in those other environments. But in that environment, it was a really good opportunity to exercise some of those theories and ideas. Yeah, I've actually heard those uh, stories myself and wondered more about those. And I did go through a run with you in one of your last final classes there um, before you shut that down. And some people didn't come in wearing the appropriate attire for running and then That's we were told right. we had to run. And so some people were stuck running in, in dress shoes or, you know, wearing pants instead of shorts on a, on a hot summer's day. Sure. And that's another thing that's important, right? Obviously, we don't want it to be dangerous and hurt somebody. But in real life, you're maybe getting off from work and you're stopping off at the store to pick up something and you're walking across the parking lot and somebody attacks you and you're wearing your dress shoes and you're wearing a, a maybe a, a jacket and a tie or you've got a backpack slung over your back and, and then you've got to react, right? Maybe you have to run. Maybe you have to defend yourself. I, I don't know, but we, we can't always be ready for what's going to happen in real life. So, you know, you just have to deal with it as it's, as it's dealt to you and you've got to survive it. And that was definitely part of the attitude of, of uh, what was happening at the Hambu Dojo. One other crazy experience that I, I had is one of the last classes that I, I experienced there. There was that we, we typically on the charts, there's a whole section for knife defense. And completely to my surprise and utter shock, you pulled out real knives and and gave it to the attackers. Now, mind you, they were they were higher level and experienced uh, students, but they were still students and they were still people that I'd been training with. And now they had a real knife in their hands that they had to defend against. That took all of the comfort and familiarity and put in a, lot, a huge sense of fear into me. Not not because I, you know, I was in there. I, I, I was at that point, I was just a beginner. So I didn't get to experience that firsthand. But watching my fellow students go through that was a little harrowing. Yeah, I bet. So obviously we don't do it with the beginning students uh, simply because we do have some level of safety. I don't want anybody getting seriously injured in class. Uh, but with the more advanced students, um, you know, the people that I have, you know, developed trust in and, and I know they have confidence in themselves, to do that exercise means exactly what you described it as, which is it's a whole different feeling. I mean, when you're using a wooden practice knife or a rubber practice knife, you know no matter what, nobody's going to get cut, right? At the very most, they might get a little bruise or something to that effect. And you just practice your techniques and you go through your repetition. But when you take out real steel, it's a whole different feeling. And everything becomes very, very tunnel vision focused. And... I bet you the people that you know were getting stabbed or sliced at had no concept of anything else happening in the world at that moment outside of what was directly in front of them. And it was literally for them as close to a moment of life or death as they were going to get to, being that they're not you know combat soldiers or, or police officers. I, I remember the group that was there. And um, you know that feeling is a necessary feeling to have once or twice because – uh, you can't get sloppy, right? And you've seen in class when people practice with rubber knife and they throw somebody down and then they just grab the knife and take it out of their hand. So you can't do that with a real blade, right? You've got to be able to twist the hand so that the knife falls out so that you can grab it by the handle, not the blade. And little things that sometimes you don't think about when 
you know, number one, the instructor has to make sure you think about it, but sometimes you don't think about it when you're just working with, uh, you know, something that's not dangerous. So every once in a while, and there were classes that, uh, you, you know, you didn't see where, um, we had, you know, actual firearms and stuff at the black belt level. Uh, it makes you very, very focused on what you have to execute that it has to be executed perfectly and simply and quickly. So that is definitely part of the training. Uh, we do that actually quite a bit at the black belt level. Every once in a while, we'll do a little bit of it, maybe at the brown belt level. But, uh, you know, typically we have a black belt outing, you know, once a year where we go way out into the woods and go camping. And, and you know, we do all of our defense with real weapons. And, and uh, you know, to date, nobody has got hurt. You know, that just goes to show the level of training that's necessary to do that. But it certainly uh, uh, gives you a different mental view of what it takes to really defend yourself when there's real danger involved. That is intense. Uh, I think you're really creating something legendary here or have already and have put it into practice. And, and for our listeners who are unbelieving of this, I mean, I, I can attest to at least some of these some of these stories and the fact that you're doing this, Shihan, is to, to describe. But... <laughs> well, you know how passionate I am and the other instructors are, you know, like uh, Tony and Todd and those guys about, you know, getting our students as close to real as possible because we've all experienced what actual real life situations are like. And we want to make sure they're prepared. You know, one of the one of the worst things a good martial art instructor uh, could have happened to them is have a well-trained student go out and, and, you know, get their asses kicked by some completely untrained punk. Uh, that would really point to the fact that we didn't pay attention to that student and, and getting them prepared for reality. Um, you know, some percentage of that ability to defend yourself in real life is your techniques, but a, a huge percentage of it is, you know, is your mind. It's your mental state. It's your mental toughness. And, and so we found that to be something that uh, we wanted to be important as an instructor and, and become important to our students. Okay. So that's the story of the Hanbu Dojo. I mean, there's lots more stories. I'm sure anybody that's talked to any of the black belts, or if you haven't, take the opportunity to go do so. Uh, they will certainly all have their own various uh, memories of, of what went on there. And, and one of the things that we did um, uh, at, at Kobukai, and it was very purposeful, is that very early on, um, even as we were starting to form uh, Kobukai. As we were starting to think about specifically what techniques were going to be on the charts, we started uh, filming. We started recording these things on on video and film, just to make sure that what typically happens wasn't going to happen for us, which is these really outrageous and un untruthful mythological stories being developed over time. We wanted to be able to tell a story, as outrageous as it may sound, and then have actual physical evidence that that actually occurred. So a lot of these classes that we're talking about, uh, you know, these black belt outings, uh, people's tests, our holiday bashes, you know, being in the woods and, and doing training, uh, all of these things that we've really talked about over the years are on film or video somewhere. A few of our black belts have access to to all of that. And, you know, we just wanted to make sure we had a real record of, of, uh, of what went on as crazy as it may be. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Jihan. This was a very formative. I had, um, a I had a blast talking about it. And, you know, for all the students that are listening, it does not mean because you're not in the old Hambu Dojo that you cannot go into class every day with that mental attitude and demand that of your other students and your instructor. I know that Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu is one of the hardest, uh, most mentally and physical, 
physically difficult uh, jujitsu classes out there. We want it to be. Um, so uh, you are getting sort of the spoils of what some of your instructors, you know, learned at the Hambu Dojo, and they're and they're all passing that on to you now. I know if you've ever worked out with uh, Sensei Joel or Sensei Ryan, uh, Sensei Briars, uh, Sensei Kosienda, all of these people that trained early on in that dojo, you you know how realistic and serious it is when you train with them. So you're all in good hands. 